0: I think there are um, two camps, quite frankly, here in uh, in the US as to what uh, has gone on in Europe. One of them is too quick of uh, the total embracement of renewables, and the other side is too quick of a total abandonment of nuclear and baseload <laughs> resources.
1: Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers, and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Feddersen, founder and chief executive of Aurora. And my guest on the show today has had a distinguished career in public service in the electricity sector. He's currently a Public Utility Commissioner of Texas, or P-U-C-T Commissioner. And formerly, he had a number of senior roles in government, including as a Senior Policy Advisor to the U.S. Secretary of State for Energy, uh, the Energy Policy Director to Texas Governor George W. Bush, uh, he founded and led the Office of Electricity at the U.S. DOE, the Department of Energy, and he served on the White House Task Force for Streamlining Energy Permitting. He's also had an active career in the private sector as uh, founder of Clean Line Energy. Uh, among other roles, Clean Line Energy is a transmission line developer. My guest on the show today is Jimmy Glotfelty. Uh, welcome, Jimmy. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here great. Well, it's great to have you. Um, and can I start with your very interesting career? And and can I start by asking you for our audience outside the US and, and and probably some that are outside Texas, but in the US, what in a nutshell does the P-U-C-T do? And in particular, is there a difference between a public utility commission in a state like Texas versus one in say Maryland, where you're in a, a broader um, regional transmission organization, or uh, where you're in a vert- vertically integrated uh, uh, ISO like in Georgia or something like that? What's specific about the PUCT's role?
0: Yeah, yeah great question. Uh, so the PUCT, uh, re- we regulate um, electric utilities, water utilities, and telecommunications utilities. It's that simple. Um, but what those are, in each state, under each state law, defines what we regulate. So, we do very little telecommunications uh, regulation, as does most, as do most um, uh, regulatory bodies across the United States. All of that was taken away by the federal government many, many years ago. Um, Water utilities are very, very localized, and we do a tremendous amount of permitting for the the, uh, sale and transfer or the the CCN permitting for new lines um, of water utilities. Obviously, that's becoming a bigger issue. And for electric utilities, um, an electric utility in Texas is really a transmission and distribution wires company, where in other regions like Maryland or in other RTO regions, um it may be it may have the generation component to it and the retail sales component um very similar to the vertically integrated utilities in the southeast we do not regulate um the rates um of the generation sector and we do not regulate the rates of the competitive retail sector we ensure that they are competitive and we have consumer protections in place but we do not regulate their
1: rate setting mhm and so can you say just a little bit more about how you interact then with the generation space for example when you say we ensure they're competitive is that primarily through the market construct you know how does how does ercot run the run the marketplace for electricity or, or how do you interact with the with the generation space
0: yeah, you're exactly right. I, I, the the vast majority of it is through our implementation, our defining and ERCOT's implementation of the market design construct here in ERCOT. So we um, I, I will say that, um, Texas is comprised of areas that are outside of ERCOT. So we do have vertically integrated utilities in four parts of our state. So we actually get uh, to see both different kinds of, uh, of regulation, um, vertically mm-hmm. integrated utilities and those through the market. So we get a, a flavor of both.
1: Interesting. Okay, so you you'll you'll have a reasonable sense of the pros and the the, the cons of each then uh, in, right. in your in your current role. Um, can you say a bit? You joined at a very interesting time. So I think, from what I understand, you're just just over a year there at the PUCT now. But, you know, obviously it's a huge it's a huge role in the U.S. energy system. Great honor. But it was a tough time after, you know, we'd had the lights go out after Storm Uri in 2021 in February. What were the main reasons you took on the role? Well, I love challenges, quite frankly. Uh, If you look at my career, um,
0: we have been, uh, uh, there's been a smattering of challenges in almost every role. Uh, in the governor's office, uh, when we were creating competition in, in Texas in the electric sector, it was just that it was a, a massive industry structure change at the department of energy. We were, uh, managing the California energy crisis, uh, and the 2003 blackout investigation. Um, at, uh, at Calpine, I, uh, helped permit power plants in 14 States and, uh, and clean line, you know, we had, uh, you know, equal permitting challenges in lots of states. And then finally, I would just say um, my last role prior to this was at uh, a company called Quanta Services. They built, uh, they do the actual construction of transmission lines. And I helped um, develop the project and uh, win, the, win the contract that manages the power system in Puerto Rico now. So the company mm-hmm. called Luma grew out of that. And, and obviously that's a, uh, that was a, an exciting time to try to help them recover from that first hurricane. Um, now, obviously there, there are other challenges there, but um, okay. uh, so, so it, it has seemed to, to be a, a lot of uh, industry challenges that, uh, that I'm drawn to. Uh, and, and like those um, it's brought me a lot of different diverse uh Perspectives that I can uh, can pull from, so it was a great fit at the right time.
1: Yeah, no, I was just saying you're you're glutton for punishment. It sounds like, but it is. There are surprisingly few people in the power sector. You know, there's a lot of people. You know once something gets proven, one of the nice aspects of the power sector and the U S in particular, once it's proven, there's no shortage of people rushing in to do it and, you know, developing renewables. And now, you know, we're seeing a flood to flood of battery developers. Uh, It's, but it's often those early phases, right? Whether it's, Green hydrogen now, or CCUS, or uh, you know the high voltage transmission in the US just seems like a diabolical issue. So um, I'm glad someone wants to take these. T- and, take and you know, all of up. those issues have to be done at the
0: right time. Um, you have to have the economics and the policy and the market structure set up for all of those at the right time. Makes it more risky. Um, uh, and that was like our our experience at Clean Line. We were probably um, you know eight years ahead of where we are today and the it's a much greater likelihood that some hvdc lines will get built now uh than it was back then but we were kind of leading that charge and uh all of those
1: things had to line up interesting okay i'd love to pick up that topic uh in a second of kind of the build out of high voltage transmission because it's a it's a it's an interesting one for me so i'll come i'll come back to that in a second i'm so I'm a little bit more bearish based on what I'm seeing in Western Europe, at least, in any sort of densely populated democracy. But um, it will be good to pick that up with an expert in a second. But before I get to that, uh, I have a few questions, like, broad broadly around our industry. And the first one is on my mind. It may not be on my mind, but it's a European energy crisis right now. I suspect you've seen some of it, right? So power prices, gas prices, you know, 5, 10, 15x, where they were. You know, pre-COVID, or certainly, sort of in 2020. Do you see in the US? Do you see any consensus on kind of, you know, what what it what it means right now? Where Europe went wrong? What they should have done differently? You know, what are the what are the lessons you think the US intelligentsia is coming up with around Europe's problems at the moment? Well, I, I
0: think that um, there are uh, just a, a few things that come to mind on this. First of all. Obviously, the war in Ukraine and the uh, the Russian gas issue has exacerbated problems. I think it's a uh, it's a no brainer that uh, that that has uh, increased gas prices dramatically. Uh, and that effect is felt all over the world, even here in Texas, uh, our import our, our exporting of LNG, um, obviously going to Europe uh, and Asia, quite frankly, um, are feeling some of the effects of that. Um, I, you know, I think there are um two camps, um, quite frankly, here in uh, in the us as to what uh, has gone on in Europe. One of them is, um too quick of uh, the total embracement of renewables, um and the other side is, too quick of a total abandonment of nuclear and baseload resources. And where yeah. you find you know, both sides unwilling to move towards something common that says we need both of them and they both need to work together, it seems to be one size is we haven't gone fast enough to, new, to renewables and have found ourselves in this transition. And the other say, you're wrong. We have to have all of these baseloaded resources no matter what. And yeah. we find ourselves in that situation in the U.S. as well. But that's what I see, you know, are the two sides, um, it, kind of the two polarity um, areas uh, in, in Europe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it could be um, it could be the U.S. is learning a little. You know, we've had the Diablo Canyon debate in California recently around the, the decision to close a nuclear facility and po- possibly... Um, possibly some of the lessons of europe being learned in in the in the us you know we're we're making them over here so that you don't have to but we we will see is there a, another question on my mind that comes out of uh, comes out of clients here in europe is sort of how much us lng is there I, I know you're you're a regulator rather than an investor at the moment but you know if europeans turn up to the us and say hey i'm happy to buy 12 buck per mmbtu lng on a long term contract i mean is how much is there? Is there any LNG at that price? Is there infinity LNG at that price? How should a European think about, uh, you know, when the cavalry is going to turn up from across the the Atlantic?
0: I I think uh, so. First of all, I am not the pro on the gas markets, mm-hmm. so um, I follow them as more of a feedstock into the electricity production cost. But it seems to me that uh, we have a a huge supply. Um, what we're, you know, we're in the Permian Basin, much of the gas that is being shipped by LNG is just associated gas with the oil production. Uh, yeah. We're not, you know, sending a whole lot out of some of these very gas intensive um shale plays like the Barnett shale and the Haynesville shale. So those are are available. And I think um, as we continue to see how the industry transitions, there we're, we're going to hit the point where we think, um we either can't do any more or we have unlimited supply but i don't think anybody knows i i i think mm-hmm. right now those again the the two different sides one would say we're doing too much and the other one would say uh we've got so much more that uh, that we ought to we ought to protect our allies and and give them as much as we can
1: yeah okay interesting but it sounds like an implication is a, a european strategy that relies solely on LNG imports from the US is a is a risky. It's a it's a hell of a bet to make. Uh, at at this point, as a sort of one way as a, as a, as as making one bet rather than many bets.
0: Well, I would say that as a global market, if we're shipping LNG to Asia and um, other parts of the world, um, we only have so much LNG export capacity. Yeah. If we can't get more built, then you know it's a risky strategy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you just one other question on this? Do you so it was probably five or six or seven years ago that Europe went went decidedly against fracking, essentially. Most European countries went against it. Um, after seeing some of the promise in the US in that period between say 08 and 2012, when gas prices really declined. Do you you know obviously you're in Texas, which has been a huge beneficiary of of, of technological advancement in oil and gas extraction. Does it? Do you look at those European decisions and say, you know, in the context of Russia, that looked like a mistake now with the benefit of hindsight? Uh,
0: I, I don't know that I'm the best one to judge their, you know, local uh, resource development, but uh, yeah. if they have prolific um, multi-layer um, plays as they're called for, for resource development, it could be a valuable resource just sitting that that they're sitting on top of. And, Mm. um, it may be something that they relook at depending upon price. If prices stay, you know, 10 X or 15 X, um, someone, you know, will probably find a way to, uh, to exploit that and try to resolve it and see if you can get some, uh, of that local gas utilized.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so I wanted to come back to high voltage networks. You've you've seen it from a permitting side, a government side, you've seen it from an in- investor side, um, from a from a construction side. Um, so, so one way to get at this question quite quantitatively is what do you think is going to going to do more to ease congestion in, say, ERCOD or say the US over the next 20 years? Will it be high voltage networks or will it be battery storage? Which one do you think will have a bigger role in easing congestion?
0: Uh, You know, I would say uh, out of those two choices, I would say battery storage, just because they're easier to build. um, There's plenty of money flowing into that sector in that space. And high voltage is just a very, very hard nut to crack. With population growing, uh, with right-of-ways hard to acquire, um, it, it just becomes a, uh, I think, capital flows towards the easiest or least resistance. And and that seems to be storage right now. But I think there's one that you left out, and that is, um, you know, Uh, technologies that help control power on the ac system Mm -hmm. so fax devices and things like that that can help the ac system work more efficiently and allow more power to flow down rights of way Um, they are i think critically important they're underutilized here in the u.s because i think our our regulatory construct tells a utility you know you um, you you pay your investors by you know investing in the most expensive uh, yeah. technology. So that would be a new transmission line. So um, we we have to get the incentives lined up. That uh, if you're going to invest in the in the new transmission lines later on, we want you to reduce congestion now, and that would mean use controllability, fax devices, uh, dynamic line rating,
1: other things that can help reduce cost to consumers now. Yeah, and is that. Is is the is the enabler there? I mean, you touched on the enabler. Is the, it? Sounds like the enabler isn't markets necessarily in the US regulatory construct. It is about you know firm regulation with these monopoly networks in general. It is what what do we want to reward? And we don't want to reward necessarily capital being deployed. We want to reward use of the existing assets well.
0: Right, uh, well, I, I think it depends upon the industry structure in each region, uh, in each state, because if you have, I I think folks over the years have said, uh, and it's proven to be true, that if you're a vertically integrated utility and you're making the bulk of your, your revenue stream comes from your generation sector, you don't want to eliminate congestion because you are gonna be reducing prices um, and that's detrimental to your shareholders. So um, finding that right structure, obviously that's what the RTO was intended to help resolve, um, but, uh, and, and has done a pretty good job. Uh, the The big challenge that where we have is uh, not only citing transmission lines, but it's cost allocation. Who is gonna pay for these upgrades? Um, are, are folks in one state gonna be willing uh, or forced to pay for upgrades that are going to uh, open up resources in another state. And th- that's really where we have a uh, go it alone strategy among our states as opposed to we're all in this together.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, for what it's worth on the high voltage development, I, mean, I, I entirely agree with you. I think, you know, my, you, A couple of European examples, you know, England is a country where a lot of generate UK, a lot of generations up up north and a lot of the demand is down south. And I think the the four latest high voltage transmission lines have all been under the water. Just, you know, fortunately Great Britain has water on both sides, so you can do that, but it's an expensive way to build. And Germany, which doesn't have, Water on on its east and west side. It has the same problem of, of generation in the north and 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 load in the south. It's basically paying large amounts of money through ancillary services for wind farms to turn down and for thermal to turn up in the in the in the south, and and that starts to get out of hand. So I don't I don't know how much evidence you need that high voltage transmission is hard to build, but certainly the last five years has. In Western Europe, has has demonstrated that I I think uh, for sure the irony in Europe is actually the easiest transmission to build is between states. I think uh, there's yeah, European you know Europeans are you know the at least Brussels is big on solidarity between states. So a bit, a bit like the U.S. railway lines 150 years ago were meant to knit the nation together. I think there's a view in Brussels that the power sector can knit the knit the continent together. We will we will see. We will see. Have you had any, Do you just as a side point on that, is there any movement towards greater competition for construction of transmission lines in, in you know, in Texas, as I understand it, there are different regions where, uh, you know, you've got a Point, you, you, you've got Encore, you've got others. Is there any move to sort of, you know, Encore's about to build a transmission line, uh, let's make it a competitive, you know, rather than sort of assessing the proposal from a, cost competitiveness you know in the abstract or in, in isolation is, is this does this cost the same as the last project or whatever however you do that have you asked three people to pr- make a proposal um have you ever thought of competition in online transmission in texas
0: you know we we've had that in the state uh really just in one area and that was the build out of the competitive renewable energy zones um after that happened i think there was a uh there was a reaction in the legislature. Uh, We put in a right of first refusal um, legislation at the state level, which effectively says that nobody can build a transmission line interconnected to a substation unless you are one of the owners of the Mm substation. So you're either going to have the incumbent utilities building or you're going to have two incumbent utilities building. Uh, Depending upon who owns those two ends. I I think it's detrimental, uh, at least to competitive pressures, Um, competitive pressures on pushing down the cost of that component of service. Um, It's still going to be managed uh, by ERCOT, whoever builds it. But I think that um, it, it would be great if we had competition in that space here.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And certainly there's a complexity with onshore. I mean, the, the offshore work in Europe, it's much easier to have competition for an offshore uh, utility, the offshore transmission that's not in the, in the network in general. Um, certainly my home country of Australia is going in New South Wales, are going down the, the route of renewable and en- the, you know, the renewable energy zones, like the ones you described. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I don't see a global consensus around how, how, how this works in, in general, other than it's, maybe a step below satisfactory in in some ways. Correct. Um, Good. So just to uh, sort of, we've talked about networks. um, We've talked about Europe's crisis. Uh, Just a brief one on electric vehicles. The US is, in terms of penetration at least, doing reasonably well, but there are a few European countries that are ahead, Norway in particular. Do you think, wherever I'm in Austin, where Aurora's headquarters is, I see a bunch of Teslas around, I think it's a big Austin thing. But does... Does government have a role in enabling the electrification of the vehicle fleet, do do you think? Or is it just going to happen by itself and we don't need to worry too much about it?
0: Well, you know, I think um, our our government, our federal government um, influences that in two ways. One of them is policy and the other one is money. Um, So the policy is, you know, either an environmental or carbon reduction policy or a electrification policy for another reason. Um, But the way that they do that is through money. So that would be grants, tax credits. Um, That's really their only ploy um, to to help facilitate that. And we're seeing a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars that are going to be spent by the federal government that will flow through different companies and um, different uh, private sector companies, as well as uh, regulated utilities to build out the electrical infrastructure. Um, I, you know i think that um my view is that the commodity that flows through those charging stations is uh is a monopoly but that mm-hmm. the charging stations themselves um we've seen evgo and others uh we we hear the the large um car manufacturers we've seen tesla put in superchargers the flow of capital it just doesn't seem like a regulated service to me and mm-hmm. uh, that infrastructure piece so um we're not uh we're not patient here uh, so we want to make this happen very quickly and and i think there's you know a double side to that coin um letting nat letting capital flow naturally is probably the best rate rather than forcing it to happen and and then overbuild and you know you find yourself in
1: some crisis or or overbuilt situation yeah okay so the so the question like Neighbourhood Street, as an example, just a specific one, Neighbourhood Street, it can handle the first three EVs. The, the net, a few people want to, you know, this is just distribution, low-voltage distribution network. The, the next couple come along, they call up the distribution company and say, I want to connect, I want an EV charger. They say, look, you know, we don't have the strength in the network. We're going to have, have to upgrade the whole network. Um, that's you, you think that's broadly a reasonable process for, you know, because the, the other argument might be, you um, we know EVs are coming. As government, we're going to bet on, you know, government has a bad track record of, of picking winners in general, but we think EVs are going to win. We're going to reinforce all the networks because we know we're going to be at 100%. You know, Joe Biden tells us we're going to be at 100% EVs, uh, you know, at some point in the near future. Um, we need to reinforce for that now. So let's get out in front of it rather than being reactive to it.
0: Yeah. So, so I think there, there are two issues there. One of them is um, when I spoke about the government, I was clearly talking about the federal government role uh, in EV rollout and charging stations across the U.S. Yeah. In Texas, we definitely have a role um, in how that happens through our electric utilities. Um and the, the the point that you made about uh, distribution systems, we're going to have a lot of work to do there. We're going to have to understand um, how a, you know, incremental um, push of EVs is going to affect the cost of the distribution system. And um, understanding that, um, I think, forces you to do a few things. One of them is um, understand how that um Load can also become a resource on the system when it's not being utilized. Uh, that will lower the cost across the system and and perhaps provide reliability issues. Um, you know, the, the, the other is to um, really uh, look at Texas as a urban and a rural state. Rural, you know, w- America hasn't had a great track record of really wanting to serve rural America without government involvement. The uh, Rural Electrification mm. Services is, is the... Uh, is I think the poster child, um, you know, utilities didn't want to go out to, you know, the the areas where you're serving, you know, two customers a mile. Uh so the government had to help help make that happen. I think, you, you know, until you see, you know, a, a big um choice of electric trucks um yeah. that have the track record of uh the stability of you know our our big heavy duty trucks. And I'm not talking 18 wheelers, I'm talking farm trucks. Yeah you know we still are very rural and we you know farmers like their their trucks and uh we, th- that's going to be a big um area to convince folks that 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 the new electri- electrified truck is going to be as good as the old
1: yeah 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 interesting does it do you think you mentioned a little bit about sort of how to utilize the assets that we have once we've got electric vehicles on the more electric vehicles on the grid and a and a smarter system do you think say Twenty years from now, so so for listeners, ERCOT is a nodal market, but nodal on the generation side and zonal on the on the on the retail side. So we don't you don't have consumers paying d- differential uh, amounts depending on which suburb they're in, for example. PJM goes the the full way to having a d- both both sided nodal pricing. Do, do you think having all of these You know, small embedded um, you know devices on the distribution network means twenty years from now, ERCOT will be think you know will be starting to gravitate towards nodal pricing on the consumer side as well. I I think you have to. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, really,
0: consumers are going to demand that they get a fair price for the for the kilowatts that they're putting back on the system. So. They're going to want something fair and it's going to drive that. Um, But it's also, uh, you know, it's a great price signal uh, to tell us where to locate and where not to locate. Um, You know, if if we want the market to operate in an efficient manner, you know, doing that, in my opinion, you know, gets us, um, you know, uh, further than we are today uh, Mm. on that demand side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it occurs to me that there's sort of, there's a, at least in Europe, there's a sort of political. There's a there's a there's a political sort of negativity towards differential pricing by citizens. That's not necessarily the implication of. I mean, nodal pricing is yes, it definitely differential marginal cost, but it need not then translate into consumer welfare. And I think sometimes it's a sort of lack of political imagination that refuses this type of thing out of hand without actually exploring how it how it might work. So I often point. Yeah,
0: I I mean, I do believe that it's a. uh, I mean, I think there are cross class subsidies, um, you know, throughout our electric system. And um, some of them have been historical, but uh, you might see some other ones and and people, you know, through the proliferation of the Internet and information, and all that people are finding ways to protect themselves more. So um, before it was they they the utility said, this is the way it's got to be. And they said, OK, well, I need electric service. And now they're saying, well, I can provide my own and I want it at this price. Um, it's a much more complex system um, when you have not only all of the suppliers, uh, but all of the demand side is participating in the market
1: as well. Yeah. And do you think a harder job for the regulator? you've, You've obviously got a horse in this race, but do you think being a regulator 20 years ago was easier than it is now? I think it's
0: much harder. I yeah. think it's much harder with the proliferation of technology, um, with the number of market participants, with all of these devices having a potential cybersecurity component to them. It, it just it compounds and it makes it much much harder.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, it segues nicely to a question I wanted to ask you about market liberalisation. So you you know you were involved in these debates uh 20 years ago uh you know when when the us was moving towards liberalization of its of its power markets you know competitive generation those sorts of things it, it strikes me that 40% of roughly 40% of the us population still live in you know these vertically integrated monopoly systems where one company will own all the generation most of the generational they'll contract long term with other generation they'll own all of the retail uh book they'll sometimes own the transmission and distribution as well why didn't it go further in the u.s what what held back liberalization of power markets i guess
0: my perception is that uh you know, if in terms of population, uh, we have a, a whole lot of the population that's in a competitive market um, down in the southeastern United States, some uh, states in the West and some states in the upper Midwest are still vertically integrated. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, a story of the strength of the utility, um, the story that they're telling um, and the regulators. You know, there may be a component of whether the regulators are appointed or elected. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, um, you're seeing, you know, in the Southeastern United States, you're seeing, um, they're, they're not having the, the resource adequacy problems that we are having, but they're building a $29 billion nuclear plant. So they're going to have other issues. So neither of them are perfect. But, uh, what we tried to do was make sure that the generation side, when we started this experiment, it was, uh, it was 80% of the bill the generation was um, and if we could take the risk of building new generators off the consumers then prices would come down yeah and I think they've done that
1: is do you do, is the I mean that 29 billion nuclear power station or there was a CCS plant somewhere that's billions as well that must show up in people's bills or, or maybe it's easy to to hide I don't know but is there enough evidence that competition has provided benefits in your mind in the U.S? I think
0: uh, the answer is yes. So wholesale competition and retail competition, I think both of them, um, you know, sometimes we have to go back, I think, as regulators and and state policymakers and determine if, um, you know, what the reasons were were for, for changing this market structure. But also, is it a natural monopoly? I mean, really, that's what it was initially. And the question becomes, if it's not a natural monopoly, is that something that we need to do? So if you take it more of a philosophical standpoint, um, capital is willing to flow into the generation sector. We've seen capital flow into our our retail markets here. Um, Do we need to regulate that or should we allow the competition to drive the price, whether it be a higher price because uh, of the fuel mix that that an area chooses chooses? Um, you know, let, let's let the markets determine that as long as there is a regulatory standard to make sure that the system is reliable. Yeah. That's the issue we're facing right now, obviously resource adequacy and all that that means uh, is the issue that most markets are facing across the U S
1: and perhaps globally. Excellent. Well, I want to pick up on resource adequacy shortly. And I, and I agree with you and, 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 and you know, dare, we'll get to it. Dare I say it, I think your decision around resource adequacy approach then has broad-ranging implications for competition, for for investment horizons, all sorts of things like that. But this is certainly this is certainly a key question for regulators, which I'll pick up on. But before I get to that, um, it just it, zooming out a little bit. Um, but it, so. Joe Biden went to the last election saying net zero power sector by 2035 is my understanding of the policy. Um, uh, what what do you see as the biggest impediments to it? Let, you know, I you know, my view, net zero power by 2035 depends on the country and the region. You know, if, if, if we really want it, it feels plausible, r- roughly speaking. What do you see as the biggest impediments to achieving that goal in the US?
0: Um, I think it would be um the acceptance of gas as a resource, the transition to hydrogen as the fuel, um, the fact that um, most folks in the electric sector say, Why are you doing it to us? The transportation sector does more, you know, creates more of a problem. And uh, adding the costs to us and our sector um, has a wide ranging effect on the economy. Um, let's let this happen naturally. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Interesting. So so it's, and, and the, the sort of, the, what I heard was sort of, uh, the you know, the, pol- the politics in a sense of, ch- you're not, th- this is a, along the way to net zero, there's going to be a bunch of people who are made worse off and uh, and they're going to, you know, there's, there's going to be debates every step of the way. It's not going to be smooth yeah, transition. Well, I mean, what, zero, what
0: if the country like. said, uh, we're going to zero meat in yeah. uh, in 2030, you'd have a lot of farmers uh, angry if we said we're you know we are going to abolish corn. I think the farmers in Iowa would be you know pretty pretty yeah. disappointed and and angry about that. So they protect their financial interests and their community interests and their state interests, and and that uh, doesn't always filter up at the at the federal level when we call for the policies like this. Yeah. Besides we we know as Americans that the policies can change every 4 years with a new presidential election and the transition in these resources takes a lot longer than that. So yeah. wait, it, wait it out is a uh, is a viable strategy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um good. Okay, so we talked about resource adequacy. I want to zoom in on Texas and the PUCT. So uh, broad question to start with um I- you know answer it please however you like but so as i said i said in the opening you've been at the PUCT for around about a year what are your what are your reflections on that year you know what you know what were the what were the biggest punchlines the biggest surprises yeah what what are the key reflections
0: i think uh that we have a great team at the puc that uh, we've done a huge amount of work uh, in terms of implementing legislation to make our system more reliable. Uh, I I truly believe that it is much more reliable than it was uh, during the winter storm URI in terms of weatherization, in terms of uh, communication between uh, industry participants, uh, including regulators. Um, And we are in a much better place than we were then. We haven't solved all the problems, but uh, we are way better off than we were uh, during Winter Storm Uri.
1: Yeah, if just to drill in on one of those points, and we had Pat Wood on the podcast. I don't know; it's probably a year ago, six six months ago. Um, we diagnosed some of the problems that that happened during Uri, and one of them was around which load to shed. So let's just say this winter we we have a similar blackout. Would Do you think the same things would be shed this time around as were shed during Yuri or have we rethought, you know, what gets cut off and for how long in that sort of instance? Is is that something that you focused on?
0: Yes. I I think we are, um, ERCOT uh, and others have gone through the exercises on how do we make sure that we can um, shed load and rotate that load shedding in a more, uh, favorable way to to impact more people for a shorter amount of time than fewer people for a long period of time. And, um, you know, we, we don't want to shed load. No operator wants to shed load. It should be the last uh, resort to save and sh- ensure the system stays up and is and continues to allow power to flow. Um, we need to continue to think of it in in that way that we don't want load shed to be a resource tool, but we want it to be the last resort and um, understanding the distribution systems and critical loads. And, you know, if you can't shut down one uh, critical distribution line because it's got a nursing home on it, but it also has a neighborhood of 3000 homes, um, how do we how do we, you know, uh fix the distribution system to allow us to keep the critical load on but but allow the others to be part of the rotating component of of system reliability
1: yeah okay and and so just i I want to talk about the the kind of consumer build component of yuri but before we do that now i don't know if there's any event in the history of electricity markets that's been more analyzed more diagnosed than yuri in feb 2021 and yeah, in some ways you're probably sick of it i don't i mean it's a very important topic so it's hard to get sick of but at the same time um this has been you know in, in infinity diagnosis of it do you have a sort of pithy you know what went wrong in feb 2021 type type answer you know some people say look this is just Power systems shouldn't be designed for peak load in a century, and these things are going to happen once every hundred years. And some people say, "Here are the ten different different things we got wrong." Where, where do you sit? What, you know, if you were to summarize like eighty percent of what the problem was, how would you describe it?
0: Well, what I found when we analyzed the 2003 blackout was that it's not just one issue. It it is a series of issues. We learned um, this from the National Transportation Safety Board when we went and talked to them prior to the, the blackout investigation, which is when you have a major plane crash, What do you look at? And it's not only the facts of that day. It's the facts of the preceding weeks, months and years ahead of time. So what we found is um, obviously the uh, the the nature of this storm was one that was unprecedented in Texas, Um, how we cut electricity off to um, compressor stations that provide natural gas to those very same. Uh, generating uh, stations was a very unique situation. We hadn't had that before, but we have addressed it now. Um, understanding things like that, um, the communication between the ERCOT operators and the and the generation operators and their gas suppliers, um, understanding the the relationship between how we are um, uh, rolling uh, outages and uh, and in some areas and not in others. Um, You know, I think the public did a great service when we um, there was a a big uproar in most major cities where uh, single family homes were out of power. Yet you look downtown and you see all of the buildings totally lit up with nobody in them and and, and the consumers complained about it. And sure enough, what Mm -hmm. happened was those buildings got their power shut off and, um, it worked that way, but we've learned a lot of lessons, weatherization of the system, you know, primary, which is we have to weatherize to the ex- more extreme events and, um, a- a- and understand how to prepare for those so that we don't have, uh, catastrophic outages.
1: Is there a, it's, so in a sense you're preparing for an event now that may, if you believe the statistics may not happen for another 50 years. Right. How do you make sure that the actions you're now, obviously, for all sorts of reasons, the, one we, the ones we care about a lot are, are imminent and technology will change and all sorts of things. Or, But just thinking sort of 10 years out or something like that, how do you go about as a regulator ensuring that the changes that are made don't just impact this winter and next winter or next summer and the one after that, but are actually still being enforced <laughs> 10 years ago. Do you you think about the behavioral dimension there and how how you make sure it sticks?
0: Well, I, I don't think it sticks. I think it continually evolves. Uh, that's what it has to do. So it's not the standard today that we um, are going to be implementing and and uh, ensuring is adhered to in 10 years. It's the standard that we deal with in eight years from now. So if weather patterns continue to change, if resource types continue to change, uh, if the demand and generation side change, uh, we're going to have to adapt to that model. Um, it's really driven by economics and reliability and less regulatory certainty um, mm-hmm. or regulatory structure. We all have a role in that, but uh, we we need to adapt to to the changing system and ensure reliability. Now, I say, you know, on any, we had a a catastrophic um, challenge with URI, but uh, during the 2003 blackout, uh, there wasn't a massive winter storm. Uh, It wasn't in August. We had a a, uh, a tree limb hit a line, it tripped the line, it caused a cascading outage because there were voltage problems on the system. And we had communications issues between layers of market, op- market participants, operators, and regulators. Mm. So um, these things sometimes are not uh, driven by weather, but they're driven by the fact that we have an electromechanical system and uh, sometimes they're mistakes made. But hopefully our mandatory rules and, and penalty structure Uh, minimize that from happening
1: yeah yeah it's the it's the thing you're not thinking about i mean i mean a really good recent example in europe is um you know what looks like sabotage of major gas pipelines in europe and and you know until now you know seeing is believing and until now i think there'd been uh, you know relative relaxation i'm sure some were focused on it around a huge amount of Europe's energy security going under the sea uh, and, and, you know, where you can have submarines and all sorts of sabotage is possible. So I think, I think it'll be interesting to see what the implications are, but it's another example of, you know, you think your problem is resource adequacy or market design or weatherization, and then something, it's the thing you're not looking at that tends to surprise you in these
0: places. You you know, the one thing that I would say on that is as, as the industry over the last hundred years or, or more has built out the transmission and distribution systems, Um, our reliability model has been based upon redundancy. Mm. So uh, similar to the telecommunication system, you've got to have some redundancy built in. If you're too reliant on one line, if that line goes out, then you have a catastrophic problem. So ensuring that the redundancy happens um, is a critical part of that thinking going forward. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Do do you think just as, as do you think markets tend to reduce the emphasis on redundancy or or do you think a market with a good regulator can you know make sure that that's there i think a market uh with good regulators
0: can make yeah. sure that that is there yeah yeah absolutely okay
1: um so capacity adequacy you you've sort of put that on a pedestal as as one of the key topics at the resource adequacy capacity adequacy as as one of the key topics um and 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 how we approach that going forward obviously ERCOT has Texans would say it's historically been an energy only market. At least to me, you know, there's been this, you know, quite clever sort of scarcity adder approach where you know people, you know, you don't have to wait for the lights to go out to get premium pricing. You can get some premium pricing in advance. So hopefully, um, hopefully, the lights don't need to go out, but you still get market signals. Um, That you know that's that's been called into question. What are the what are the and, and obviously. You know, there are other options the rest of the world is looking at. What are the options you're looking at around capacity adequacy, resource adequacy in ERCOT at the moment?
0: Well, we're looking at at a handful of proposals. I think the two primary are some sort of load serving entity obligation and a backstop reliability service. Um, and that would be uh, setting aside some of the generation in the market uh, for that uh, catastrophic reliability event to make sure that it's there, but pulling that out of the pricing mechanism in the market to allow the market to see higher prices for a short period of time and allow more generation to get built. The load serving entity obligation would say if you have uh, if you're serving retail load, you have to prove to us, uh, ERCOT, the market, the regulator that you have uh, enough. Uh, electricity uh, generated or contracted for to satisfy that load. And um, you do that, um, you know, either in a forward market or you do it in a, you know, real-time structure. And we're going through those issues today. You know, I, I think the other one, which is, um, you know, one we're not really looking at, but uh, is is still viable, is we've got very high um, resource adequacy margins today. Um, I, I do not believe that the uh, that the winter storm was a uh, uh, was an indictment of our market design and resource adequacy. Mm. I think there are two different issues. The resource adequacy issue is being driven by the challenge of uh, zero marginal cost units uh, economically competing with resources that have high capital costs and marginal costs that are driven by fuel. Um, that that creates a reliability problem, but that is a different issue. Um, we need to resolve them together in terms of resource adequacy. But um, uh, doing the resource adequacy uh, just to solve the the URI problem um, is really
1: uh, telling half the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but certainly in my experience, you, you, as you say, you get to a certain amount of zero marginal cost generation, and and the private sector finds it harder to in to to make long run investments in the in the power sector and certainly you know what often what often combines with that is government policy starts to get stronger whether it's in the form of tax credits or carbon pricing all of a sudden as a as an investor in dispatchable energy you're making a bet on the future of policy which is I think a lot of people find harder than making a bet on the future of markets and the gas. Yeah. And, and I
0: think we're seeing that even more and more. Uh, it, I think it goes much deeper than just the uh, the resource type. So a renewable uh, versus uh, a, a thermal plant or a dispatchable plant. You know, we're now seeing tax credits in uh, in the nuclear side. We're seeing tax credits in the carbon sequestration and the, uh, the hydrogen production, the green hydrogen production, which is obviously could be a very great use for uh, our, our wind resources and our, uh, you know, across our state. Um, but, you, you know, it goes deeper. It's not just one layer of policy. It's multiple layers that we have to be looking at over time.
1: Yeah, yeah. So just on those, two, a couple of questions I have on those two options. So the, the the backstop reserve, I mean, the example I'm most familiar with within South Australia a few years ago, um, much smaller market, obviously. It's about a three and a half gigawatt peak, um, but the lights went out for a day. Government said we're going to do a backstop reserve, built I think 400 megawatts of diesel generators, and then government changed, you know, and said we're going to keep these out of the market. We're going to enable price formation. Government changes all of a sudden. There's 400 megawatts of you know shiny new oil generators that aren't being used, and they were sold, you know, into the market. How do you do? You feel like you could? So that would be one of the challenges to the backstop reliability service. Do you feel com- comfortable that that is? you can solve that kind of time inconsistency problem and and commit, commit those to be out of the market perpetually.
0: Well, I, I think you have to do that based upon economics. So you have to make those the uh, the least economic units that are on the system. So they're not the bright new shiny units that are going to. Yeah. If somebody wants to put them in the market uh, in price formation, that they are going to uh, be the lowest resources on the gen stack. You yeah. got to keep them mid to high level so that they're not going to you know impede those resources below them in, in terms of price.
1: Yeah. Okay. And and I suppose the challenge on the load serving entity obligation, and we've got Elliot, Elliot Mainzer coming on from Kaiser in a, in a few weeks, um, is, and I think California's done this really ba- badly, I may say this to him, is uh, how do you, once you set a load serving entity obligation, how do you you know make sure government says you know we want them we want the you know we want you to decide what the what serves the load in general but hey we'd love a bunch of 8 hour duration batteries and you know can you please not make sure you don't procure any batteries that that are less than 8 hours in duration all of a sudden you've got elected officials choosing what the capacity mix is rather than any any sort of a, rather than much economic analysis do you, do you have a sense of how you might i was a massive question and we ran it well out time. it's
0: uh we, we don't uh it, it, there are challenges with the load serving entity obligation i think we've seen uh in other markets that have them uh if you think of uh of MISO, if you think of spp um they have those obligations in in place but they still have resource adequacy problems mm-hmm. so in fact are they going to solve the problem you're trying to fix or are they going to add a layer of bureaucracy that makes the market less efficient? That's really the the question that we have. Um, how do you how does that structure incent the resource that you want, which is a dispatchable resource that allows you to um, fill in the uh, the, the uh, renewable load when it doesn't be, when it's not there. Mm. Uh, it's it's somewhat of an insurance policy. It's somewhat of an economic policy, but we have to uh, we got to thread that needle. Um, but within the load serving entity obligation, there are all sorts of issues that have to be resolved. Whether it be uh, you know ELCC, what's the credit capacity for any given resource? Is it done um, annually or is it done monthly or seasonally? Um, you know what what it, it, does this energy that you um, point to as a load? Does it have to be delivered? Uh, Because if it's in a different zone or if it's behind congestion, does it really work? Um, So it's not just as easy, in our opinion, in my opinion, to say uh, the load serving entity will solve the problems because there are many that it won't.
1: Yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Okay, excellent. Um, time is running short, uh, so we have a we have a short segment at the end that I call "overrated" or "underrated," where I give you a couple of concepts in the energy transition, and then I just ask you simply, do you think it's overrated or underrated? No, no need to elaborate, but um, c- key to get your thoughts. So let me fire away with the first concept: the role of markets in decarbonizing the power sector. Do you think the role of markets is overrated or underrated in decarbonizing? Underrated. underrated
0: Underrated, because i think that markets will do what's efficient and what's right and and i'm a firm believer that they have done that uh with other pollutants and uh they'll continue to do that okay great
1: uh great definitive answer that's always the the best type for these Uh, second the role of gas as a transition fuel to a low carbon power system over or underrated uh underrated Uh,
0: again i think uh Um, But I think the the determining factor here is uh, what is a transition fuel and how long is that transition? I'd be happy if uh, gas were the transition fuel for the next 15 or 20 years, uh, still providing 50% or more of the gas in our markets. So um, I think it's underrated. I think it's a very valuable commodity, whether it's done in a combined cycle fashion or if it's done in a peaker. Yeah,
1: yeah. Excellent. Um, next, the potential for batteries to replace networks in reducing congestion and integrating renewables, overrated or underrated?
0: Again, I think uh, uh, underrated. Um, we, we don't have the expertise anywhere in the world that I'm aware of where we have seen the full potential of batteries. Um, we just don't have the experience. That's the challenge is we can't put you know, a hundred percent of our our uh, commitment in them. If we don't know what we can expect from them, so that will gradually change, and they are going to become more and more a part of our uh, the the energy side, the demand side, the reliability components yeah. of our system, and, and integration yeah. side.
1: Yeah, no, no, and I think Texas is doing the world a great service in looking at what batteries do in a, in a competitive market where people are making investments based on the economics and the ancillary services. What, you know, what, what do batteries do and how useful are they? So we're going to, we're going to learn a lot. I think Thanks. To I hope we keep it. Regard. Uh, and then finally capacity markets like PJM as drivers of system reliability, overrated or underrated? Uh, overrated.
0: Okay. Um, capacity markets um, are a construct that can solve a problem, but there are other ways that can do that as well. I, I'm convinced of that. Um, we had uh, you know, we didn't have capacity problems when we had the 2003 blackout and yet we had a major blackout. Um, there if you just think of it in terms of one issue, um, then you can uh, you can say capacity markets are the best but but it is a dynamic question with a dynamic answer so one lever uh, that you pull will will affect 10 or, or 20 other issues and um, but but I do believe I mean if you want to pay um, a high price for insurance and have a, a large amount of insurance on your system, um then you can do that and a capacity market will work it's just a matter of uh you know is that what your consumers your your policymakers are willing to do and and i think uh we're at that crossroads in texas and i think that the vast majority of folks in texas do not want to overpay for insurance yeah um it's almost like the uh the insurance ad on tv you know uh pay for what you need yeah. um uh, that works most of the time but not all the time
1: yeah yeah great Excellent. Okay. Well, that's a natural note to finish on, Jimmy. Um, my, my my overriding impression is it's it's fantastic to have you in the role that you're in. It's good that there are gluttons for punishment out there in terms of um, regulation of the power market and, and pushing our thinking forward. So, uh, Jimmy Glotfelty, thank you so much for taking the time to speak.
0: And, John, let me say thank you. Uh, you know, a uh, part of our policy role uh, is understanding the, the data behind the system and, and reading your documents and, and getting insight from you all is fantastic. Thank you.
1: That was John Federson, Aurora's founder and CEO, talking to Jimmy Glafelty. Commissioner on the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.